Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. The Bowery Boys, Episode 360, The Botanical Gardens of New York City. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we are celebrating spring <sighs> and being in public spaces, being outdoors. Today we're headed to the Botanical Garden, or actually, should I say, we're headed to a few botanical gardens. Yes, and in fact, while we were researching this show, Greg and I headed to a few of those ourselves, and in fact, obviously, everyone we're talking about today. And this is notable because it was the first time, Greg, that you and I actually met up together to do research and walk through one of our subjects uh, in the past, what, 13 months? Yeah. I mean, nature is healing, Tom. I'm glad we recognized each other. <laughs> that, was, that, that was great. Well, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island all have their own botanical gardens. And they're all just a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Now, no, we're not botanists all of a sudden here on the show. Although, Tom, I must say, I know my way around a good herbarium. You should see my <laughs> herbarium. I know my way around Whole Foods' herb section. Does that count? (laughs) It does, actually. But this is a story of the historical institutions that brought a little greenery and open air to the people of New York City. Yes, the sage characters, if you will. (laughs) Tom, we do not have time for puns today. Our focus, though, is not on cooking herbs so much as it is botanical gardens and really, the, the important role and the scientific role that these institutions have played. And they have played a very important civic role in the city. Now, this is not a show about gardening, Mm-mm. but rather how gardens themselves have actually shaped our lives. And specifically, how they have shaped New York City life. More than I think most people probably know. And today's story really begins in the Gilded Age. We've been doing a number of shows that take place in the Gilded Age, but during a period in which the city was opening up some grand new cultural institutions. Well, Tom, I know that you're actually alluding there to the opening of the New York Botanical Gardens, Mm -hmm. but I think we need to take a, a step back here and really explain a fundamental of something that we're going to be talking about a lot on that a lot on this show and that is you know what exactly is a botanical garden or botanic garden yeah well i guess another very basic question here is is it botanical or botanic um and the answer fortunately is either one <laughs> well like a good garden it's a style choice and different burrows would choose different forms of the word But Merriam-Webster defines a botanical garden as, quote, a garden often with greenhouses for the culture, study, and exhibition of special plants. 
Okay, and then botany, of course, is the study of plants themselves. Yes, the scientific study of plants. It's a, it's a branch of biology. It's plant science. And botany is then related to horticulture, which is the practice or the art of cultivating or growing those plants in gardens. So today we are talking about botanical gardens, which are devoted to the cultivation, study, and exhibition of special plants. Yes, the growing and also the studying and the exhibiting of those plants. As we'll see today, you know, the city's various botanical gardens do focus on those elements, but also on, at the same time, creating a beautiful space, you know, for leisurely walks and, and quiet contemplation. And that's beginning to sound a little bit like one of the fundamental purposes of a park. But a park right. is actually quite different than a botanical garden. Right. Parks and, and just regular gardens are usually dedicated, you know, to creating lovely spaces for strolling and recreation. And this is done usually by including lovely landscaping and flowers and trees. You can find lovely examples all over the city, like Washington Square Park, Bryant Park. Right. And there are obviously parks that are also dedicated to the preservation of nature as well. You know, preserving the beauty of the land as it was in its natural form. But all of that is actually quite different from collecting and growing plants, special plants, in order to study them and exhibit them. So just as a history museum may have historical artifacts, a botanical garden, those artifacts are special plants. Yes, collections. Their collections mm -hmm. are plants. Yes. Now, of course, gardens have existed for millennia. They go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the Garden of Eden was not a botanical garden, and many of these ancient gardens were not for the study of plants. Well, some were. I mean, there were lavish royal gardens that were going back, you know, to like 2800 BC in China. And this tradition would carry on through ancient Egypt and then up through Athens, where did you know that Aristotle actually cultivated uh, what some consider to have been the very first garden for the scientific study of plants around the 4th century BC. And, and then this tradition would carry on into the Roman Empire and into medieval Europe, where monks continued it on, you know, through the Middle Ages, developing a more scientific approach to cataloging the plants and to finding medicinal uses for those plants. And then during the Renaissance, the study of plants would be taken up in universities from Italy up through Germany and England and Scotland. And by the time we get here to the English, were they opening these gardens to the public? Yeah, in France and England in the 17th century. In fact, Paris opened its Jardin des Plantes in the 1630s, and London its Chelsea Physic Garden um, in the 1670s. So that by the time that they opened the Royal Gardens at Kew in London in the 1750s, they were actually growing plants that had been imported from the New World. The public could admire these plants, but at the same time, physicians and medical students were studying these plants and learning about their unique abilities to treat ailments. So when did the Botanical Garden first cross the Atlantic and arrive in North America? Uh, well, one of the first was Bartram's Garden in Philadelphia, which was 
founded in 1728 by a botanist named John Bartram, uh, who developed a really important collection of North American plants. And he sold them as well. This was a private nursery, along with a, a botanical garden. But the first public botanical garden, one intended for scientific research, would come about 70 years later here in New York, an effort that was led by a Columbia professor and a doctor named David Huzzock. Now, as a special treat for listeners, a couple years ago, uh, you actually uh, released a special show specifically on the life and accomplishments of Dr. Husek here and his extraordinary Elgin Botanic Garden. Yes. Could you give us a quick overview here since he's so important to, to the beginning of this story? Yeah. In, in that show, I, I interviewed Victoria Johnson, who's a professor at Hunter College and the author of the 2018 book, American Eden, David Husek, Botany and Medicine in the Garden of the Early Republic. Huzzock was a physician who was living in post-revolution New York. He had studied medicine abroad in Edinburgh and spent time learning botany and, and studying plants in the great botanical gardens in Europe. And he returned to New York from his studies abroad, determined to establish a public botanical garden that would cultivate plants that could be studied and used for medicinal purposes and also for industrial uses. This just wasn't happening at the time in the United States. And he would manage to get that garden open just mm -hmm. a few miles north of where the city of New York was at that time in the middle of Manhattan Island. Yeah, on 20 acres of land. He named his garden the Elgin Botanic Garden after his father's birthplace of Elgin, Scotland. And it was operational by 1801. He spent a fortune on this place. But eventually, he just sadly didn't have the time or the resources to keep it running. So he ended up selling it to New York State, who then turned it over to Columbia University mm. in 1814. And they then went on and leased it out. They parceled it off and, you know, leased off the lots. Eventually, many years later, in the 1920s, Columbia would then lease that land to John D. Rockefeller Jr. for the construction of Rockefeller Center. So New York's very first botanical garden sat on the spot of Rockefeller Center, which, of course, today has a garden. <laughs> Many of them. Rooftop yes. gardens, mm -hmm. too. Yes. And, and the Channel Gardens. Now, there's so much to that story that we're just going to move past the fact that he also happened to be the personal physician of Alexander Hamilton and attended to Hamilton after his fateful duel in 1804. And he was also the personal physician of Aaron Burr. He really led an extraordinary life. So for more on Dr. Huzzock, listen to episode number 297. But it is interesting that he saw the value of this kind of institution so early on in mm -hmm. American history here, but just didn't have the resources to keep it functional. Yeah, although he did sort of light a fire, you know, among American botanists uh, for decades, really, um, who believed in this need for a botanical garden in New York. One of Huzzock's students at Columbia, in fact, was a man named John Torrey. John Torrey, who would become a distinguished botanist and also a Columbia trustee, and would give the university his collection of plants. 
Tory also founded the Tory Botanical Club, which began publishing a journal on botany in the 1870s and advocating for a botanical garden in the city. The 1870s, which is, of course, a very great decade to think about opening new institutions because so many were already debuting on the scene. Including the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the American Museum of Natural History. So that year, in 1877, plans were drawn up for a botanical garden in or around adjacent to Central Park, but the money simply couldn't be raised to fund it. But these ambitious botanists were not going to let the idea wither. No. Perhaps the garden's location was just wrong. Perhaps it needed to be transplanted to another spot in the city. (laughs) But then a few years later, in 1888, at a meeting of the Tory Botanical Club, one of its members, a botanist named Elizabeth Knight Britton, recounted to the group a recent visit that she and her botanist and professor husband, Nathaniel Lord Britton, had made to, a, to another botanical garden, perhaps the best in the world, London's Royal Botanic Gardens. And it, it struck them while they were strolling the garden at Kew that New York needed one of these institutions and that now was the time to make it happen. According to the book, The New York Botanical Garden, an illustrated chronicle of plants and people by Ogden Tanner and Adele Auchincloss, they cautioned that its primary purposes should be scientific and educational, but admitted that it could also be a, quote, place of agreeable resort for the public at large. And so the Tory Botanical Club looked around for a perfect spot, and they looked up to the Bronx where the New Parks Act of 1884 had set aside several thousand acres for the establishment of six parks connected by three parkways. Now, this being the 1880s, the city is not yet consolidated into five boroughs. So New York is pretty much just Manhattan, except for this particular area of the Bronx, west of the Bronx River, This had been annexed by New York City and was only lightly developed by this time. It was the ideal spot for a botanical garden. And so on April 28, 1891, the New York State Legislature passed an act that set aside 250 acres of one of these parks, Bronx Park, for a New York botanical garden. Although by this point, nothing had actually been constructed because they needed money. The state allocated $500,000, but required at the same time that the garden find another $250,000 from private donors. Well, fortunately, it was the Gilded Age, so there were a lot of full pockets just wandering around, filled with money. (laughs) (laughs) They went straight to the top, straight to the deepest pockets for the leadership roles in in this new organization. New York's top botanists and scientists were on the board, of course, but the officers of this new corporation were as follows, Greg. President Cornelius Vanderbilt II, Vice President Andrew Carnegie, and Treasurer J.P. Morgan. Well, that's one way to make a buck. (laughs) Just put all of the wealthiest people on your board. These men each gave $25,000, and many, many others gave money too, along with Columbia, which gave 25000 And this group then elected as their secretary, Nathaniel Lord Britton of the Tory Club. 
and these directors then chose the northern portion of Bronx Park for their garden. According to the garden, they chose this spot because of its, quote, picturesque terrain, freshwater Bronx River, rock-cut gorge, and 50 acres of old-growth forest. That forest, by the way, was the Thane family forest, and it represents today still the largest existing part of the original forest that covered today's New York City hundreds of years ago. And it's really one of the extraordinary highlights of the Botanic Garden, a place that's cultivated. But of course, this is a real natural connection to New York. And not to mention, of course, the Bronx River, which kind of like tumbles through the whole area as well. Yeah, it cuts straight down through the forest. There were some buildings already on the land, including the old estate and the 45-room mansion of the prominent Lorillard family, an estate that had been more than 600 acres large, and which also included, aside from their mansion, their snuff mill, Greg, which had operated along the banks of the Bronx River. Did you say a snuff mill? (laughs) I thought you might ask about that. Yes, Pierre Lorillard, the family patriarch, had established his tobacco company in the 1760s in New York. And this snuff mill a mill for expressly for the manufacturing of tobacco had gone up around 1840. But were they still making tobacco then by this time? No, by the 1870s, the Lorillard Company had moved to Jersey City. So yeah, there was an abandoned old snuff mill and a mansion along the Bronx River. I mean, this sounds like a setting straight out of a Nancy Drew book. <laughs> I, d- I guess it wouldn't be Nancy in the old snuff mill, but you know... <laughs> I don't know. That might be one of the later entries in that book series. When they got kind of wild in the 70s. When she got a little older and could smoke. She and Bess and George. Well, they had a big challenge ahead of them, of course, you know, being the first botanical garden here. Like, what was it going to look like? How was it going to be arranged? Mm -hmm. Well, in 1896, the directors of the garden named Nathaniel Lord Britton as the garden's first director in chief. And he went about developing it. Finally, in December of 1897, park officials held a groundbreaking ceremony for the Gardens Museum Building, the first building in the nation to be devoted expressly to botany. The building would be completed in 1901. And so the garden was open by 1901? Yes, by this time, people were visiting the garden uh, to take in the plants that were growing. You know, it kind of takes a while for a botanical garden to officially open. Because, yeah, you know, that's true. the plants have to grow. Well, and by the way, that whole family forest had been open for hundreds of years, technically. <laughs> that's true. Today, when you visit the Botanical Garden, your adventure is really governed by three sections mm-hmm. of which you've kind of already spoken about. Now, there is the western section, which is the oldest part. It has the two main entrances. And of course, that museum building, also called the library building today, the Lou Esther T. Mertz building, is in that section near one of the entrances. Then you have the eastern section of the park, which features kind of more newer elements than the rest of the park, including one of my favorite places when the time's right, which is the Peggy Rockefeller Rose Garden, very mm-hmm. beautiful place, which sprouted up here in the 1980s. Then, of course, separating those two is that marvelous 
forest with all of its wonderful wandering walking paths and the Bronx River, which you can sort of take in over some beautiful bridges. Today, there are three New York City landmarks within the park. And you mentioned two of them, that aforementioned museum building. The Lorillard Snuff Mill, which is, the mansion is no longer there, but the Snuff Mill is there, the building is there, and it's an event space today. But there is a third landmark, and it's perhaps the most well-known of all the buildings in the Botanic Garden. And that is the Enid Ahopt Conservatory, completed in 1902. Oh, it is such a beauty. I mean, it looks like it reminds me of the the Crystal Palace. Oh, I know, doesn't it? I mean, it it just takes you back to like a 19th century uh, experience, although it was built in 1902. It's a glorious glass-domed greenhouse made by Lord and Burnham, featuring pavilions that radiate from either side of that dome and form a C-shape surrounding a massive pool, which you'll find lily pads and all sorts of exhibitions around the pool as well. The greenhouse features a variety of controlled habitats inside. It's, you know, it's it's really like a little sampling of the whole world here, hosting palms and cacti, vines, aquatic plants, and there's even examples of flora from the rainforest here. So that's quite a contrast, right? Inside Mm -hmm. the conservatory, you've got this highly controlled environment, ideal for growing specific plants. And then outside of it, across the lane, you've got this ancient forest, uh, which is Mm -hmm. wild and totally natural and preserved and not controlled at all. Yeah. And believe it or not, these are original things that you would have seen in those opening days of the botanical gardens. So many things would be added throughout the decades, but the things that we've just listed here were, you know, were part of that original experience. And you would have seen them in 1914, perhaps if you were a member of the Women's Auxiliary. Um, Let me read you um, a clip from the New York Times on May 8th, 1914. Headline, Botanical Gardens, Now Woman's Pride, Land Aglow with Color. Quote, The New York Botanical Garden had its first official personally conducted tour through the garden yesterday afternoon. The tour also celebrated a new feature of the management of the garden, a women's auxiliary. The guests left New York at 2.30 and were met at the garden by auxiliary members in automobiles. From the station, they were taken to the main conservatory to see the flowers outside and in. Walking and riding alternatively, they visited the herbaceous Garden Valley, the Gorge of the Bronx River, the Hemlock Grove, the water gardens and lakes, and following the garden flag wound up at the museum building where tea was served. What a sensible and highly cultured way to spend the afternoon. <laughs> oh, indeed. And you mentioned that they had they had arrived on the 230? Is that what you said? Yeah, on the 230, the old New York Central Railroad, that is today, of course, the Metro North. Right, with a station right across from that west gate, mm-hmm. which was also the Vanderbilt Family Railroad. Vanderbilt, he of, you know, the board. Yeah, it was all connected literally and figuratively and connected to Manhattan. But if we're talking the 1910s now, that that anecdote was 1914, you're still very far away 
from this place. If you happen to live in the former independent city of Brooklyn, mm. you know, which is now by this time one of the five boroughs of Greater New York. Well, fortunately, the residents of Brooklyn would get their own botanical garden here in the early 20th century. Yes, they'd have a garden of their own. But let me just back up just a second and explain a little bit where that botanic garden is located today. It is in Brooklyn, it is near the northern portion of Prospect Park, you know, which is like Central Park, designed by Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox, and a park that was mostly completed and opened in the early 1870s. And did, did you just say that it's located in the park? No, you said it's located near the northern section of Prospect Park. Yeah, so so here was the catch. The city of Brooklyn had purchased this massive acreage, right, for the development of Prospect Park in the 1860s. But in that original design, it happened to have Flatbush Avenue, which kind of like clipped the, the top portion of this particular parcel of land. And you know, even back in the 1860s, Flatbush Avenue was still very bustling and not exactly very conducive for a park. So then when Calvert Vox came in to kind of revise the plans of Prospect Park, he discarded that part that had been cut off, essentially. And so that little portion then became its own little park called Mount Prospect Park. And so that is the area of land that we'll be talking about right now. So if they were developing Prospect Park into the beautiful place that it is, what would a park's leader do with this little sliced off piece of park? Yeah, it, 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 undetermined, right? There was a, a, a reservoir up here uh, for a long time. But into our story here sweeps in the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences, which is the city's premier organization. And I mean the city as in Brooklyn, the city of Brooklyn's premier organization for scientific and literary pursuits, which actually began pursuing some major initiatives starting in the 1890s. Well, yeah, they had to keep up with their neighbor. They had to keep up with with New York City, which, you know, had opened up fine cultural institutions like the Met. Yeah, well, and in fact, the Brooklyn Institute would do the same. They would also open a new home for art and historical artifacts uh, called the Brooklyn Museum, which opened in a very stately new home designed by McKim Meaden White, which partially opened... On this plot of land I was telling you about, um, in 1897, along Eastern Parkway. Now, 1897, this took a few years, you know, consolidation happens, and now Brooklyn is a borough of greater New York, no longer an independent city. But they did have another initiative, which rolled out here, and that was the creation of a botanical garden specifically for Brooklyn, and right next door to the museum. In fact, it was originally called Institute Park. Hmm. And its opening day was on May 13th, 1911. The Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Botanic Garden. Yes, Just that's the official name. Okay, mm -hmm. it works. Um, <laughs> it's a style choice. <laughs> we just have to keep them straight. And what were some of the key features of this Botanic Garden? So, uh, this 
garden is about a fifth of the size of the Bronx garden, right? So it's a, it was originally 39 acres. Today, it's 52 acres versus 250 acres, which you find up at the New York Botanical Garden. So I like to say it is perfect for a very long afternoon stroll. That's mm. how large it is. <laughs> but it has a very lofty pedigree with the grounds themselves designed by none other than the sun's of Frederick Law Olmsted. You know, he helped design the Prospect Park, so his sons are now here and have developed the Botanic Garden. Although as the park evolves, uh, some major changes would be overseen by a Yonkers architect named Harold Capern. And so if we had been strolling through the Botanic Garden in these opening years, Mm -hmm. what would we have encountered? Well, let's actually pick a specific year, 1920, because that is the year that the subway was extended to the Brooklyn Museum. And thus, you know, people could take the train here and go to the museum and then go to the Botanic Garden. Mm. Well, back when the park first opened, their main exhibit was called a Native Flora Garden, which is still on display today. And you would have seen it in 1920. You would have also seen there conservatory, um, a very dynamic glass-encased conservatory, which opened in 1917 and was also designed by the firm of McKim, Mead & White, the respected architectural firm that, have, that had, of course, also designed the Brooklyn Museum. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the most unusual, the most interesting, and maybe I assume might have been my favorite thing to see strolling around in the early years of the Botanic Garden here was the Japanese Garden, which opened in 1915 with a Shinto shrine and pond by designer Takeo Shiota. So this is kind of amazing, Tom. 1915 is when this opened. So Mm. the first of its kind to be built in an American Botanic Garden. And really set it apart from not just of the New York Botanic Garden, but of course, all other types of gardens in the United States. Shiota, by the way, would go on to build a Japanese garden atop the Hotel Astor in Times Square just a few years later. Oh, to have taken in Times Square from the Japanese garden atop the Hotel Mm -hmm. Astor, Greg. (laughs) Doesn't that sound delightful? Right now, yes. (laughs) But to recap here, by the 1920s, there are two botanical gardens in New York City. But the city's botanical garden scene is only just beginning to bloom. We'll get to more botanical gardens of New York City after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. 
In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So here we are in the 1920s. We have the New York Botanical Garden and the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And as the years progress, they're adding all of these new features, all of these new gardens that are further enriching their collections. Yeah, up in the Bronx, they were still, you know, considering ways to attain the goal that the Tory Club had set for them way back in the 1880s. They were looking for ways to cultivate, you know, the most impressive botanical garden in the world. Now, you mentioned the Women's Auxiliary. They were very active in the 1920s. The New York Times reported on May 23rd, 1926, that this committee were heading an effort to boost the garden status. Quote, women to improve botanical garden. Plans to aid in the upbuilding of the New York Botanical Garden as a world center of beauty and science will be committees of leading New York women. It was announced yesterday by Mrs. Arthur H. Scribner of 39 East 67th Street. Mrs. Scribner has been chosen chair of the Women's Advisory Council of the Garden to succeed Mrs. George W. Perkins. Our interests, she said, are in the artistic aspects of flower culture and in making the garden at Bronx Park more attractive. We see no reason why it should someday not equal in this respect the Kew Gardens of England, perhaps the most beautiful in the world. Now, am I crazy, Tom, or does it seem like, you know, the men are all on these committees, on these, you know, boards of directors. Uh, But the women here seem to be really operating on a day-to-day level, the sort of the regular activities at the Botanic Gardens. Well, I don't know if they were like weeding the gardens, Greg, but (laughs) I would say that many of the women in sort of the society women who were involved here in the Women's Advisory Council were instrumental in fundraising, you know, like their husbands. But they also, many of them, 
that had a practical knowledge of gardens. This article in the Times also explains that members of the Women's Advisory Council would be examining possibilities. They said possibilities for improvement at the garden. And it noted that, quote, these inquiries will be directed by women who have dealt with special problems of gardening and country life on their own estates, according to Mrs. Scribner, who has a country place at Mount Kisco, New York. Well, if Edith Wharton hadn't chucked the United States for Europe, they could have just <laughs> called her up on the phone. I think she would have had some pretty good advice to give them. She wrote books on this. Yes, I mean, she would yes. have been so involved had she been here. But their efforts would result in the development of the Ladies' Border, which was installed by 1933 and designed by the landscape architect Ellen Biddle Shipman. Also in the 1930s, the Botanical Garden created a horticulture school under the direction of T.H. Everett, which still operates today as the School for Professional Horticulture, and it has trained generations of horticulturalists in its two-year program. And meanwhile, down in Brooklyn at their botanical garden, the uh, botanic, well, there were major changes here afoot as well. Yes, the 1920s saw the creation of their popular bonsai collection. And today, its bonsai museum at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden is one of the largest bonsai collections on display outside of Japan. 1928 saw the opening of the Cranford Rose Garden, which is still just one of the sweetest smelling places to be in in the city every June. <laughs> Tom, can I say that I have wandered through the Rose Garden on many a sad day, and the oh. garden has brought me joy. Oh, Thus fulfilling its mission. <laughs> yes. According to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, writing about the Cranford Rose Garden, quote, here in one of the largest collections in North America, thousands of rose bushes are cultivated, including wild species, old garden roses, hybrid teas, grandifloras, floribundas, polyanthas, hybrid perpetuals, climbers, ramblers, and miniatures. Some of the original roses planted in 1927 are still in the garden today. From the Cranford Garden to Golden Girls, I love my old roses. <laughs> but another, rom another romantic spot is the Botanic Garden's Shakespeare Garden, which had opened just a few years before in 1925. And here you can wander a, a sort of cottage-style garden that includes more than 80 plants that are mentioned in the works of Shakespeare. Hmm. Many of those are then labeled with sort of, you know, their corresponding quote from the bard, from one of his works or sonnets or plays. To be or not to be filled with bees. <laughs> <laughs> many, many bees. <laughs> yes. But, and here's... A Here's a twist. By the late 1930s, perhaps the most exciting advancements here in botanical gardens were taking place not in the Bronx, not in Brooklyn, but in Queens. Yes. On the site of one of our other favorite topics, the 1939-1940 World's Fair out in Flushing Meadows. That fair, which commemorated the 150th anniversary of Washington's inauguration, and rose atop a reclaimed ash dump, 
was extraordinary for many, many reasons. Um, and I would refer you to episode 288 that we recorded back in April 2019 on the World's Fair of 1939. But one of the remarkable exhibits at the fair was called Gardens on Parade, which was a lovely five-acre celebration of plants and flowers and horticulture. And who exactly organize this gardens on parade because if i remember correctly like many of these pavilions were actually sponsored by private companies mm-hmm. so this this wasn't like a like a stately institution that was leading this parade no and there were nonprofits you know who were obviously involved as well various organizations civic organizations religious and and so on this one gardens on parade was funded and it was planted by a nonprofit organization called Hortus Hortus Inc an organization you know comprised of a a very large number of botanical gardens gardening clubs professional gardeners and included representatives of the New York Botanical Garden and the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And Hortus was run by the accomplished philanthropist and acclaimed gardener, Harriet Barnes Pratt. And where in the world's fair was <laughs> this garden located? It was in the international section at a sort of choice spot across from England. There was a main horticulture building, which included flowers from all 48 states and territories. According to an excellent article that was written by Margaret Ann Tokarczewski, published by the Queen's Botanical Society. Within view of the European pavilions, the exhibit's fan-shaped area was rimmed by the Flushing River and showcased formal and informal gardens, highlighted by woodland, rock, water, naturalistic, perennial, and tropical displays. All were designed to appeal to both garden lovers and homeowners, with practical suggestions for everybody. Among the many highlights were Jackson and Perkins' Parade of Modern Roses, featuring 8,000 rose bushes in 250 varieties, originated in 18 different countries, and a research greenhouse designed by Lord and Burnham, containing scientific and innovative exhibits, such as hydroponics gardening, overseen by Cornell University. Hmm, interesting. So so something for everyone, pretty much mm-hmm. here. But what happened then to this exhibition once the fair closed? Well, fortunately, Robert Moses, who... That's not something you say. <laughs> Fortunately, Robert <laughs> Moses, keep going. Who was instrumental in uh, putting together the fair, didn't just tear down uh, Gardens on Parade. He allowed it to stay in place after the fair had closed down and operate as a sort of volunteer-led garden. Um, and so this could stay put. However... A little bit later then, the locals who had been volunteering here did manage to turn things around and actually reopen it as the Queen's Botanical Garden Society in 1946, uh, which would then become the Queen's Botanical Garden. And opened it in the same spot, right? That's right. So Robert Moses, garden lover here, Mm -hmm. allowed this garden to stay put 
here right. on the site of his old World's Fair. But let's not forget that during this moment, he is ramming parkways through neighborhoods across the city. In fact, ramming parkways through parks even. In fact, one that would touch today's story, back up in the Bronx, where the Bronx River Parkway's southern extension would slice right through the eastern edge of the Bronx Park, right alongside the New York Botanical Garden. The parkway itself was already quite old because construction on that parkway had had begun in 1907, uh, making it actually one of the first in the country that was constructed expressly for automobiles. However, the parkway had stopped north of the park near the Westchester County line. And in 1951, then, it was extended south through the park to Bruckner Boulevard. Well, to look at this maybe positively, uh, it sounds like it might have been easier to get to the New York Botanical Garden because now there was a highway next to it. Yes, it was easier to reach. And perhaps parts of the Botanical Garden were just a little bit louder now, too. Mm -hmm. But the 1950s also saw some budget woes at the New York Botanical Garden, which had, remember, been partially reliant since the beginning on private donations. And those gifts from wealthy New Yorkers were dwindling by the 1950s. And up to this time, uh, the Botanical Garden still wasn't charging admission, and the, the city wasn't exactly stepping in to give a lot more. Which, of course, then brings us to the 1960s. Yes. Challenging decade for New York City. Yeah, and I actually just want us to stop real quick back out in Queens then, where the old Queens Botanical Garden had been operating, right, at the old World's mm-hmm. Fair. Well, that had been working out great, you know, for about a, a decade and a half, until the city decided to start building up the next World's Fair which was to open in 1964. That old botanical garden, that old garden on parade, was now in the way. Oh, yeah. We're talking Unisphere, googie architecture, space age here (laughs) Mm -hmm. down in Mm -hmm. Flushing Meadows. There is no room for a garden. It will have to parade away. And that is exactly what it did. When, When they moved in order to make room in 1961 to nearby Main Street in Flushing, on the on the 39 acre site where it still stands today when you visit today look out for two trees that are flanking the park's entrance today two blue atlas cedars uh, they were actually taken from the original flowers on parade exhibit at the world's fair and were transplanted to the new site now to recap we have the new york botanical garden in the Bronx. We have the Queens Botanical Garden and we have the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Mm -hmm. But they're all going through some tumultuous times right now, right? 1960s. But during the same decade, there's also something else happening in terms of New York City and gardens. Something maybe a little surprising. So instead of building any new gardens, historic spaces, pre-existing historic spaces are being reclaimed for the creation of botanic gardens. So then in finding a new purpose for these old structures, Mm -hmm. uh, that would then allow these old historic structures to avoid the wrecking ball. Yeah, in a decade where a lot of things are tumbling down throughout the city, right? Right. 
Um, one particular place which did not look like it had much of a chance to survive was an old Hudson River mansion that was built in 1843 by the New York lawyer William Lewis Morris. This place was called Wave Hill. And over the decades in the 19th century, it hosted everyone from Mark Twain to a young Theodore Roosevelt. Just one of dozens of old, sumptuous mansions that overlooked the Hudson River. But by the 1960s, most of those mansions had been torn down. But what happened here at Wave Hill? Well, in the 1950s, the building had been leased to the British delegation of the United Nations. And in 1960, then, the property was donated to the city. Now, you had mentioned George Perkins and his wife early in the show. Mm -hmm. Well, they, in fact, owned Wave Hill here in the latter days of its private ownership. And they, of course, as you inferred, were avid gardeners and botanists themselves and actually had beautiful gardens and a lovely greenhouse built here over the decades. And, and she, in fact, had been the president of the Women's Advisory Council. Yes, so they had their green thumbprint um, he, over here on Wave Hill. And so the estate then opened as a public garden in 1967. And Tom, I was there over the weekend. You know my affection for Wave Hill. I do. It, you know, it feels, unlike these other gardens, which are very you know, cultivated experiences, this really feels like a place that is preserved by time. You know, although it is maybe smaller than the other gardens that we mentioned, it's only 20 acres, it really has something that the others cannot quite live up to, and that is that stunning view of the Hudson River and the Palisades. It's such a throwback to old New York. Well, if you like that, Tom, then I actually have an even older New York landmark, which comes into the picture here. And that is a set of old Greek revival buildings on the north shore of Staten Island, a place called Sailor's Snug Harbor, a 19th century respite for retired sailors on 83 acres of land. I love Snug Harbor. We have been there so many times together, um, even pre-Bowery Boys on missions to get, you know, just out of the city. I mean, you feel like you're in a different city. You feel like you're in a different time. Mm -hmm. It's such a special place, an amazing place to ride your bike to. Yeah, it, uh, it's one of New York's true treasures. And kind of amazing to realize that it remained a sailor's home until the 1970s, when it too was sold to the city of New York. In 1975, it became the Snug Harbor Cultural Center and Staten Island Botanical Garden. So now, Staten Island has its own garden here. This, in a way, was a kind of a nod to the area's past when, you know... Old sailors here would work the land. They would work the farm. There were, there were even dairy cows in a barn here in the 1950s. Are the dairy cows still around? You know, I didn't see any cows. Maybe there were cows somewhere, but I didn't see any. But I did stroll through a variety of different 
garden spaces, including one of the most fascinating, I think, in the entire city, which is the New York Chinese Scholars Garden, which is a recreation of a Ming Dynasty garden and pavilion um, and a space which opened in 1999. And this is in the 1970s. So things have taken a kind of like uncharacteristically upbeat turn here in the city's botanical garden scene. Yeah, sorry. That's uh, let me let me take us back down to earth here, back to the oh. um, gloom and the financial gloom and doom of the period. So the city's finances, yes, in the 1970s were indeed very bad, meaning that funding for these types of in- institutions continued to dwindle. Attendance was falling in some of these places. In particular, our two main botanical gardens here in in the Bronx and in Brooklyn were definitely in trouble. Down at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, uh, for instance, that native flora garden, which had been the initial display that first opened when they threw Mm -hmm. open their gates in 1911, that garden actually closed for two decades due to lack of funding. And things got very dire up at the New York Botanical Garden during this period. Due to budget cuts, they had to reduce their hours and they closed several days a week. So pretty much just you came here for the weekends. The garden was often vandalized. Considering the crisis facing the entire borough during this time, it's not really surprising but very tragic. I found an article in the New York Daily News from 1970, which outlined some of the increased security measures that the garden was making. Quote, The chain and lock are heavier than the ones broken a few months earlier by night vandals who drove out with a 1939 World's Fair train used for tours around the ground. The rubber-wheeled, tractor-driven train was found out of gas more than a mile away. Wait, they stole a train? They stole an old train from the Botanic Garden and were driving it through the borough. On a joyride? Yes. I can only assume then that the garden itself, the infrastructure, the the landscaping must have really been hit as, hit as well. Yes. Um, from a New York Times article that was actually written in 1995, looking back on this period, Quote, the state of the garden slid so precipitously through the 1970s and first half of the 1980s that people were bringing their cars in to wash them. What? They were having car washes. The wetlands area owes its existence to a broken sewer that was never fixed, unquote. And then let's just consider that glorious conservatory, the jewel in the crown of the botanical garden here. It was in such poor shape. Even though it had become a New York City landmark in 1976, but it had deteriorated so badly that many feared that it would have to be torn down just for people's safety. Fortunately, however, Enid Annenberg Haupt of the Annenberg Journalism Dynasty, well, she swept in and she donated millions to the renovation and upkeep of the conservatory. A later renovation then in 1993 returned the conservatory to its former glory, and today it's actually named for its benefactor, Enid A. Haupt. So then the 70s and 80s were a really tricky time for the city to be running these cultural institutions, including botanical gardens. Yeah, these big institutions were having a rough time. And so then perhaps it's a little ironic even 
that it turns out, in fact, that a good garden can actually combat urban blight and decay and some of the major problems that were happening in the city. You know, gardens can literally and metaphorically bring life back into the city, but you had to get creative, and people did. And by gardens, I actually don't mean those that are currently struggling here in the 70s and 80s at the Botanic Gardens, but that are happening on a very small scale throughout the city. Now, down here in Manhattan, in the East Village in the 1970s, of course, neighborhoods are greatly struggling with crumbling tenements and empty storefronts and empty lots. In 1973, a gardener named Liz Christie led the community in planting a garden in an empty lot at Bowery and Houston. This would be the first community garden in New York City. To quote from the New York Daily News in 1974, quote, The only thing people expect to see filling vacant lots in the Bowery is junk, bottles, garbage, old clothes, and other rubble left by the area's renowned transient residents or bums. Small wonder that strollers stop and stare at the corner of Bowery and Houston. What used to be a rubble-filled dump heap is now cluttered to overflowing with greenery and vegetables. Wow. So that is a record of the very first community garden mm -hmm. at Houston and Bowery, you said? Yes. And of course, today, New York has hundreds of small community-led gardens all over the, the city. So this is kind of the interesting contrast that's happening. These struggling major gardens, but then smaller gardens are really helping to rehabilitate neighborhoods. And the ones in the East Village in particular, I mean, personally, remain the most magical to me because they are, they're kind of the first. And, you know, there's so many of them, many of them maintained by the East Village's Puerto Rican residents. And in many cases, bringing the land back to its like original state from before there was any development. These little green gardens that are next to rows of 19th century tenements. So here we have gardens saving historic structures like Sailor Snug Harbor mm -hmm. and, and also restoring abandoned lots um, like these community gardens in, in the East Village and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So then was there a way for the city to channel some of this enthusiasm that was growing, if you will, in gardens up to channel it up to the, the botanical gardens that needed help? Well, broadly speaking, actually, yes, because for botanical gardens to survive and how they did survive was to begin to appeal broadly to a wide range of different groups, more or less they would need to loosen up. And that, of course, would involve spending millions of dollars by fixing up the place. Infrastructure, Tom. We're talking botanical garden infrastructure. Fortunately, you know, the story is now moving here into the late 80s and, and 1990s. The city is has a little bit more money circulating through it. These botanical gardens will need to adjust their mission statements pretty much. Today, they're more of their destinations, right? Often taking cues from museum exhibitions. But along with these changes, you know, they would even act a little bit like a museum, sometimes with large-scale exhibitions. 
like blockbuster shows. Well, yeah. For instance, like this year at the New York Botanical Gardens, they have work by the Japanese artist Yayoi Kusama. Which is sold out for months. <laughs> you can never get tickets. Well, we should say, though, another way they made money, though, during the 90s was admission prices. Both the New York Botanical and the Brooklyn Botanic Garden both began charging admission for the very first time, which was a decision not without some pushback by neighbors. But they needed to survive. They needed to, you know, keep planting for the future. Yeah. But there's still that spirit of the old Elgin Botanic Garden that still exists uh, here at the New York Botanical Garden and at the other gardens. Many of these gardens still have research laboratories for, you know, potential use and future medical breakthroughs. In fact, at the New York Botanical Gardens, behind that library building, you will find the Pfizer Plant Research Laboratory. In fact, last week when we visited, yeah, we we set off expressly to hunt it down, and there it was, a brand new building located behind the museum. Yeah, as my as my body was coursing with a Pfizer vaccine <laughs> as we were walking. And then and then these places are looking to the future, not just in the lab, of course. Many of these gardens have compost projects, conservation, education programs, and other green initiatives. In fact, I spent yesterday afternoon glorious 70-something degree outside at the Queen's Botanical Garden where, you know, they really push ecology and education in their botanical displays. Uh, As you walk around, you learn about composting and also about the life cycle of plants and about filtration through roots. I mean, there's a lot of science uh, to their displays. You can find out more about these programs at their respective websites, a list of which uh, we will include on our own website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where there will be historic photos of botanical gardens and, of course, many photos from just the past couple weeks as we've been doing our research. We've been collecting images from all of these wonderful places. I might even include a a photo of the delicious lunch I got on Flushing's Main Street. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right in the middle of Flushing. Yeah, it's like a five-minute walk to, like, you know, dozens of different restaurants. In addition, please follow us on social media for, for more of those types of images. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook. We're also on Patreon. We want to thank our patrons who have visited patreon.com slash boweryboys and have joined us with their small monthly contributions, which make all the difference in our ability to actually produce the Bowery Boys as our job and devote our days to, you know, researching the show and visiting these botanical gardens. So thank you so much. You can visit Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys and learn about the special audio features that we make specifically and only for our patrons. Including our after show conversation called The Takeout. We have one for our movie theater show from last episode, which I think you'll enjoy. And our Bowery Boys Movie Club this month features the Eddie Murphy comedy Coming to America. So you can find all of that at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And we thank you for your support. Coming to America, a movie I just can't seem to stop watching. Make what? it make it end. I is don't know. It... You start watching them enough, you know. We have to watch it a couple times for the the movie club, and then it's like, you, you, I just can't stop. Tom, would you say that that movie has become a perennial favorite? 
mm, you you just couldn't let one last horticulture pun go, could you, Greg? <laughs> well, on that note, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. <laughs>